Hi, and welcome to I Want What She Has, a show that celebrates women and their stories. I'm Shauna Falana. And I'm Teresa Whitman. On today's show, we have Rita Bola Lapinel, who is an artist and an art therapist. And we're going to um, dig into some of the things that have happened that are monumental in her life. And and I have Kristen Olson Huddle, who talked to me a couple months ago. She was of interest to me because she's a sober woman who also has recently had twins, but she went through years of infertility and the ups and downs of infertility. She also lost her parents to a freak accident when she was six years old, both of them. So she does um, volunteer work at the Dougie Institute, working with children who have also experienced death in an early age. And she just had so much to share about her life journey. So (laughs) I tried to compartmentalize it as much as possible, but we're going to air that interview today. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so crazy because she's also from Wisconsin. I know. She's a writer. She w- wrote a one-woman show. I really thought of you when I was when I was uh, interviewing her. I know. I forgot where she said she's from. Do you remember? I, which town in, in Wisconsin? Yeah. I don't remember. I'm going there this weekend. Not that I have time to visit her. <laughs> well, she lives in Portland, Oregon now. But oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right on. Yeah. So... So, what's new with you, Shauna? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, we actually, we have a ton of shows coming up. I just looked at our show schedule. It's super bananas, which is the word it seems like everyone's been using. It used to be swamped. Everyone would be like, I'm so swamped. Um, And now the word is, it's bananas. Oh, okay. Have you heard it a lot lately? No. I keep hearing it. Um, and I've had synchronicity with it. Like as I was typing it to someone, someone else was telling me about how bananas their life wow. <laughs> It's that specific. It's so crazy to me how these <clears throat> kinds of things just sweep through the consciousness and then it becomes the thing and then something else happens. I, I remember when at the end of the day was coming in. Oh, I remember that, didn't you? That was like you two or three years ago. <laughs> and every single time someone would say, at the end of the day, I would say, at the end of the day. <laughs> and I used to joke around that I wanted a podcast called, at the end of the day. Because <laughs> everybody started saying it all at the same time. And it wasn't like, at the end of the day, this was going to happen. It was No, like, it was like, in conclusion. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so silly. Humans are funny. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I notice these patterns. I remember too when I used to work at a cash register, or whatever. Just the numbers, <clears throat> there would be like synchronicity with numbers. Mm. I don't know patterning. I, I listened to a podcast. Um, it's a, actually a fertility podcast. I think it's called BFN, like as in big fat negative. There's all these like acronyms that people use on the fertility like boards the whole world of fertility is like bananas but um they're british and the words they say and use are just so very different than our vocabulary and it made me think 
that I wanted to be more creative with my vocabulary <laughs> and use the different words. So I don't know how I'm going to, I'll probably end up incorporating bananas because that's just what happens now. But maybe I'll think. Of I even envision an emoji for it as I say it. I nice. see the bananas emoji. I think Jill actually texted us about dinner and she said my week is bananas and she used the banana emoji. You didn't catch. Maybe it was just a private. There were too many text messages coming through at the time and I wasn't able to pay attention to them all. So your life is bananas, Shauna. Why so is bananas. it bananas? Um, and I'm eating the fruit. <laughs> <laughs> My labor. Um, no, I mean, there's, well, Mike's going to kill me. Um, but yeah, we, we signed. Well, we haven't signed because the, the actual contract doesn't come in, but we're signing with a new record label. <gasps> and it's really cool because um, the thing about it is that I've been shopping our record. Mike was shopping our record. I shopped our record. And I actually did hear back from labels that they were checking it out and stuff. So that was just cool. And the reason why I even started shopping my own record was because I decided that I didn't need to be because I felt like forever, like it's better for an artist to be represented by somebody, you know, and I think it makes the person receiving the email feel a little bit more comfortable responding if they know that they don't have to respond to the actual artist, right. which has like a weight to it, because you would hope that indie labels are have a heart for the musicians and like care, you know? Um, but then I just decided that uh, I was taking my power back on so many different levels anyway. And I felt comfortable shopping our record and Mike had sort of switched gears um, and started working on some other things. So I just started doing it. And, uh, and then, yeah. And then this one came through and it's a, awesome deal and we get to work with our all of our team people that we've already been working with for the last two years for or four years for publicity and radio and um our friends are going to press our vinyl because they have a pressing plant and it's just going to be really sweet family style and uh, like such a a nice switch for um, me financially, because I'm not going to have to pay for everything, you know, and uh, yeah. So what does it mean? Like for those of us who are on the, this is like the, you know, the inside of like how you get a, a record out. What does that mean? Like, when will it be launched? Do you know any of those things? Well, the reason why we decided to, um, well, I really pulled the plug on it, but I decided like it's time is because March 1st is coming up. And if we want this record to come out in, you know, September, October, <laughs> it takes like six months, okay. you know, um, the distribution company that is attached to this label needs to have um, the actual product, the vinyl and everything uh, in their hands, like... I don't know, a month or two, I think, before we start sending out, like before we start our PR campaign mm -hmm. so that they can be in a position to send the music out so that it's on the shelves and whatnot in time. Okay. So, yeah, uh, it takes about six months for you to, like, say yes and then get in queue. Mm-hmm. 
And also these days, like, um, even the label that we've been on, Team Love Records, who I love and have taken great care of us for a really long time, like, we were going to meet with them this week and probably we were assuming that we were going to put it out with them again. But um, they were even saying that they're not even releasing anything now until April of 2020. What does that mean? They're not seeing anything like things. Are they are out. so booked up. Oh, I gotcha. You know, and um, the nice thing about signing with an indie label, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you get to pick when you want it to be released. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's, a, you know, like I couldn't release, obviously, four months from now, but but they were ready for us to to do an October release, which was great. If well, I was I, on a major, I would probably have to wait another year or so, or a bigger indie even. Like if we were to sign with Merge or Matador or something like that, mm -hmm. like I bet that their roster is like, you know, everything's like super filled up. Makes sense. Yeah. So. Well, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Oh, I can't even tell you. I, I'm still integrating it into my body, but <laughs> I mean, and the words that were said to me by the, the person that runs the label were just so sweet and um, just full of love and appreciation for my project, our project, and uh, I just, I don't know. I've always said to people, like, go where the love is. Mm -hmm. Like, that's been my advice. If anyone needs advice, Shauna's advice is go where the love is. <laughs> and the love was definitely coming from this label, so... I went where the love is and it just it's really great it's great and it's also female run which I'm really excited about I wonder like if there's have you noticed a difference working with women versus men in the music industry I mean we've never really talked about that I mean I know for me personally like Nate Nate runs is the owner of Team Love Records um, the label that I was on and Autumn was the one that I mostly dealt with towards the end because he he also like manages Connor Oberst and is on, you know, he's out a lot. So I would I would work with Autumn a lot, which was great. And I would go over to the the record store and she and I would have tea and like talk about the, you know, whatever we needed to talk about. But with Nate, I remember in the very beginning, um, before he released our first record, it was really hard to get him to like give a a hundred percent yes we're doing it with you know and a date and everything and there was this weird time where I would text him and I wouldn't hear back and it just felt like you know you were dating someone that wasn't really that into you and I don't know if that's because he was a guy and I have this like programming in me from childhood or something but it made it I gave my power away to him, I remember, early on, because I just felt so insecure, like, oh, he's not that into my music, you know, and um, so f my own version was that it was harder, I feel like, to deal with that in the beginning, you know, because I just, but now knowing him, looking back, he's just busy, right. you know, right. and needs you to sort of press on him a little bit, but um. But yeah, so my brain absolutely like. What do you mean when you say you gave your power over to him? Well, so instead of having, so this place that I'm stepping into now is, 
is just all within myself, but it's like how I how I interpret situations or how I um allow myself to believe that these people know what art what real art is or these people know what's good and you know um, maybe if they're not choosing me or if they don't have time for me it's because I'm not cool enough I'm not good enough you know I'm I'm not there yet Um, I don't I don't deserve to be there yet whatever you know so I give my power away in this sort of like dialogue that I have with myself and I have it it's everywhere. I like for whatever reason some veils have been lifted over the last like 3 months kind of since I got back from that last tour and I'm able to sort of really see like the dialogue that I have with myself and it, it, I mean it even goes with us and our guests like me choosing specific women to interview and feeling nervous and why you know, and a lot of times it's because I feel like they're better than I am and I don't have the right to ask them. They're going to hate me asking them. They're not going to want to do it, you know, or whatever. Like, I just make up all this stuff in my head about what that silence is or even before I even send an email, what they're going to think. And so I've just been cutting all of that out and sending the emails and then not having that dialogue and just moving into more of my own personal power and uh, feeling more self-confident. And then also like practicing the four agreements. It's also helping me to like kind of clear out some of that gunk that's been in there. I was going to say the no assumptions that I haven't gotten on to yet. But yeah, I'm on I've done be impeccable with your word this month's all been um, uh, uh, don't take anything personally, which is interesting. Erica Chase Salerno gave me that card when we did her interview, like oh. over a year ago. Remember? Yeah, she gave you a card. Yeah. Mine's uh, don't take anything personally. It happens to be the fourth agreement that I'm on this month. And this was the month that she and I did that interview and she passed away. Isn't that interesting? That is very synchronistic. But yeah, and then uh, Don't Make Assumptions is next month. And the last one is Always Do Your Best. And then I'll just cycle through them again. (laughs) Keep clearing it out. Yeah, it's that like Don't Make Assumptions where you're assuming somebody didn't respond. You're making up a story about it, right? And it's totally you're making it up. Mm -hmm. And Do you do that? Probably. I mean, (laughs) do you give your power away? I don't, I don't feel like I do very often right now, but, um, it's not, I don't think of it. I've never thought about it in that vocabulary and like that terminology. Um, I think that I've gotten to a better place about being, I, I look at it as like fear, you know, like you know, I'll have things happening with the studio where somebody will come to me and they'll want to do an event. And, you know, I realized for a long time, I was kind of just saying, yes, okay. And not really being assertive about things and sort of just going with the flow. And I don't know if it was, I was afraid to make a decision, a clear decision about something, or if I just was 
fine with being in the flow of it and just, you know, trusting other people's opinions. But I noticed that I was spending a lot of time doing things that were not, I was not receiving enough back in whatever way. And so I had to be more discerning about what I was saying yes to and how I was saying it and things like that. So, um, but I don't know if it relates in that same way. I don't know if it was a power thing, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it's there somewhere. Yeah, I think, yeah. Well, that's why I've been enjoying the four agreements because it, it kind of puts things in a different angle, you know, and it shines light from a different angle so I can see more of what I'm carrying around, I guess. Right on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Thanks for gonna, asking. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I think it's really exciting. So then when you'll, you'll go on tour then at some point? Well, yeah, we're going to go on. Actually, and that's going to be cool too. So we have a booking agent now and um, for the States and for Europe. But um, for the States, we're going to do more targeted markets. So we'll fly to San Francisco. Whoa, look at that. And do 10 days on the West Coast and just bigger cities and then, you know, come back and do more targeted market tours and stuff be more selective Mm -hmm. yeah it's exciting yeah well i don't have to spend twelve thousand dollars on on releasing this record that's amazing yeah so i can spend it in other ways first class (laughs) all the way mike if you're listening first class baby (laughs) um well, we're going to play a clip as we bring our first guest in here. And this was a clip that we're, I actually don't know Okay, where so it yeah, was I'll from. put it in the show notes. Um, so this is Kirsten Gillibrand, and she is um, now running for um, the, you know, president. Nomination. Yeah. And um, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Love It or Leave It, which is part of the um, Pod Save America world. And he had Kirsten Gillibrand on. And this was just something that I I heard her speaking about, um, believing women, and it was very powerful. So here you go. I think what Dr. Tyson did in coming forward took enormous courage. And you could tell from her statement that it causes her grave, grave trauma to relive the worst moment of her life. The reason why we talk about believing survivors as something that's really important is because for her to come forward with this story of her life, not only does it have to be received by us, it has to be taken very seriously, and it has to be investigated. You, you, you have to take these allegations seriously so they can be investigated. And that's why we want to talk about believing survivors, because if you don't take that first step to say, okay, let's investigate, you're never going to investigate. The problem with sexual assault in this country is that institutions do not believe women. They will want to put it under the rug. They want to blame survivors. They want to retaliate against survivors, whether you're talking about a college campus or you're talking about the U.S. military or you're talking about the NFL. There's so much institutional bias against a survivor in favor of the powerful every single time. So. I think there has to be a full investigation. I thought her story was, was deeply disturbing and credible. So it, there must be an investigation. Okay. You know, with Senator Franken, there were eight allegations um, that were corroborated at the time, and the eighth one happened to be a congressional staffer. 
And as someone who has been at the forefront of these movements and issues for seven years, I decided I could no longer be silent on the issue. And as a mom with young boys and the conversations I was having at home with my 15-year-old Theo, where he's like, Mom, why are you being so mean to Al Franken? Well, my heart rate starts beating very loudly and very fast and said, listen, Theo, let's be clear. You can't grope a woman anywhere on her body without her consent, and you can't forcibly kiss a woman without her consent, and it's not okay for you, and it's not okay for Senator Franken. And so that had a lot of clarity for me at that moment. Um, and it doesn't mean he wasn't entitled to whatever process he wanted. Those were his decisions. Um, but the question you ask is a broader question, which is when the consequences are about somebody you love, when the consequences are about somebody who's good at their day job, when the consequences are about the party and your priorities and what's going to happen next. At the end of the day, the question you have to ask is, do you value women? Because you're saying all those things are more important than women and survivors, whether they're male or female. And I don't think that's okay. I don't think you can make these deals with the devil to say, oh, only this once or just because, because that's what's happening every day in the US military. I can't tell you the stories when you meet a service member who has been brutally raped by someone in their own unit, not only disbelieved by their commander, but then retaliated against because they came forward. That person's life is destroyed for sometimes forever. Because it's not just the first betrayal of being raped or assaulted, it's the second betrayal of being betrayed by the institution that you love. And so for all of these allegations, all the ones you hear over and over again, you have to be concerned about the institutional bias against the not powerful, against the survivor who tends to be more junior or uh, less powerful. And so to a commander, they think that survivor is disposable and I need the one who's accused because he's so great at his day job. I I've literally been reading documents and information about when a commander decides that we have to make sure this is no longer part of his record because he's so good at his day job. It, it just goes to, do you value women? And do you value survivors? And I think it's hard, but that is when you have to do what's right, especially when it's hard. Right, so we're sitting here with Rita Bola Lapinel, who is an artist. She earned her MFA at the Hungarian Academy of Fine Arts, and she has exhibited her artwork all across Europe, Hungary, Germany, England, France, Russia, Finland, and here in the US. She moved here in 2010, lived in New York City, Los Angeles, and now the Hudson Valley. Hi. <laughs> Uh, in addition to being an artist, um, Rita is a rape survivor, a mother of Joaquin, the most cutest little boy. <laughs> um, she has overcome fertility challenges and bringing her beautiful Joaquin into this world. Um, and she recently um, started working as an art therapist here in the Hudson Valley. So. We're going to talk about all of that in addition to um, 
you know, we'll talk about her shows that she's doing, but she does have a special show coming up in March um, at here in Kingston at the Peace Nation Cafe um, of her works from the Book of Persistence, which is um, a cool, really beautiful project that she's working on. And so um, we're going to talk about that that event. I think that's March 2nd is the opening. The of it, opening right? is March 2nd, yes. Okay. Yay. Well, welcome, Rita. Thank Yay. you for coming. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm also pretty nervous. <laughs> <laughs> this it's is my first time live on radio. So <laughs> bear with me, everyone. It's, I think it's pretty normal. A lot of our guests are not professional, you know, media people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we think back to the first time Shauna and I were on the air, I forget about that. It, it was very nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you guys are pros now. I really, I really love the show, and uh, thank you for inviting me. In. Thank you. Yeah, it's fun. It did get easier. So by the time the interview is over, you'll be like, "What? It's done. I'm ready to keep going." <laughs> <laughs> um, so you studied art in Hungary, and um, if that's not intuitive to everyone, that you are from Hungary. Yes. Yes. And. Um, I thought maybe we could just talk a little bit about what life was like growing up there. Like, what was your childhood like? And, you know, you yeah. have siblings and... Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of interesting, especially telling it now in 2019 in the United States. So I was born in 83 in Hungary, in Budapest. I was born in the inner city, but... Eventually, we moved out a little bit on the outskirts of the city. It's more country-like there. And at that point, this is still the other side of the Iron Curtain. So at that point, it's socialism. Not as heavy, but still socialism. So, you know, there's a lot of stigma attached to that and all of that. But to be honest, for me, it was lovely. I was I was a little kid and, you know, kind of everybody was poor and we were all playing around and running around and... My parents were probably stressed, <laughs> but I didn't, you know, I, I I, was pretty happy. So I always have very good memories about that. When people ask about, so how was socialism? I'm like, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't have actually really any good impression other than to a lot of, our, to, you know, today's politicians are starting to talk about moving more towards that. I mean, I think there, you know, there's not to go too deep into politics, but there's, of course, there's a lot of really good stuff there as, you know, it's, yeah, it's always, it's just a problem how it was, how it was actually handled. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the same issue with capitalism probably too. Yeah, actually, yeah. that's a good point that we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater, as they would say. Exactly. It's like, think about what we're doing and how we can do it better. But um, so I have uh, two siblings from the same mom and I actually have other two siblings who are half siblings, two brothers and a sister and another brother. And uh, with my two brothers and my sister, we're pretty close. Um, my sister lived with her mom, but we, we met up like quite a lot. And my brothers and I are pretty close and played a lot. And yeah, I mean, as I thought, it was like it was like an all right childhood. We were we were in a country. There were like chickens and pigs and <laughs> a lot of fields to run around. At this point, that part of Budapest is, of course, a really built-in suburbia with houses and houses and houses on each other, and that's kind of changed throughout, like how everything changed in Hungary. So I was uh, six years old when the curtain fall and the whole region changed. 
So I actually have a cute story that Christopher, my partner, told me that I have to tell this to you guys. Yeah. So, <laughs> so my brother and I, uh, my second brother and I, we were always the one picking up the bread. And we, you know, it's like kind of like you have the quota, what you pick up and like all of those things. And I didn't know a lot about this, but I loved picking up the bread because the bread was fresh and warm and we normally ate a little bit of it. And, <laughs> and my mom was cool with it. So awesome. So we went to pick up the bread and this was, this was like... 1989 when the regime shame started and it started with a strike of cab drivers and basically they shut down the entire city so the bread didn't arrive and you know nothing like everything was shut down and we ended up waiting in that line for four hours which again was for us it was kind of fun you know like there were it's normally was the kids who picked up the bread so everybody was playing around and I don't know, and then we went home, finally, we got the bread, we tell what happened, and, and you know, like, the adults were sort of nervous, but there was just so much excitement going on, too, because, you know, I mean, it, it is exciting, like, like, the part of socialism, like, you know, when you can't travel, like, you know, you can't sometimes see relatives, like, there's, like, there's a lot of part of it that's really heavy and hard, and... Yeah, and like all of that lifted. So then, so then a little bit later, I don't quite remember the timeline, but I remember the first trip we went to Vienna. <laughs> In this, we had this like this three-car caravan with a couple of the other neighborhood um, people. We went in and drove into Vienna, and then we went into like an H and M, and which I still love to pronounce as Hound M. <laughs> <laughs> I like bought a t-shirt and went to McDonald's and it's just little <laughs> things and you know but it was it was huge like for for a six-year-old at the time that was like a big thing and I was very excited about that so did you notice the difference in your life like after things started to kind of you know shift I mean I'm sure it, it makes sense that there was a bit of a issue you know in conflict at the moment of the change, but did you notice a difference in your life after that, after things kind of got into a normal flow? Yeah, I would say yes. It's it's mainly, I mean, and again, I don't want to like go down to the political part of it, but my experience was that um, my family got suddenly really poor and even more so. And my dad, who was a psychologist, actually, he worked at a radio station. Oh, how funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, he ended up changing his career and started doing business just to make do. Like, you know, he had all these children and everything. And, and there started to, you know, there was a lot of conflict about that. He had way longer hours. Like, yeah, it's just, yeah. So my, my life started to become a little bit more difficult after that, even though initially there's the excitement. And mm -hmm. I remember the first votes that my parents took us and we were there and it was a, this big deal, like, awesome, now we're going to like, you know, vote for our prime minister. Awesome. But um but yeah, like after that, it slowly went downhill, and Hungary is not not in a good shape at all at the moment. So it's it's still going downhill. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Do you um, stay in touch with your family? Do yeah, you, yeah. I, you went back to visit like a yeah. year ago or About something. About a year ago, yeah. I took my son. We were there for a month, which was really really great. I love visiting. Like I would love to go every year. It doesn't always happen. This year we probably need to skip it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really love going home. So you went to art school mm -hmm. and what, uh, you know, like at what point did you, were you a young person creating art? You know, how did you know that that was the direction you wanted to go into? I, I actually didn't know for the longest time. I, um, I 
when I was little, I was very creative. I really liked doing things with my hands, mostly painting, but also like clay. And uh, I also was very into music. I was part of a choir and played the guitar and badly, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still play the guitar badly. <laughs> but either way, like it was, it was very important to me. And then you know, you mentioned like I went, I went through all these trauma around the age thirteen, which totally shut me down, and I stopped doing those things. And that wasn't wasn't a conscious choice. I honestly didn't even necessarily notice that that happened. Like it just kind of like my life just really changed and of course I also this was the time I started going to high school a year later so there's a lot of obvious changes so these subtle changes I didn't quite notice and it took me a while to like I was just very lost and it took me a while to figure out what I want to do in my life I actually around age 17 I started playing the bass guitar which kind of just out of nowhere and again I was still pretty bad at it but that kind of like bang just brought back all these creativity that like oh I, I really like to make stuff with my hands I this is this is what I want to do and in Hungary there's only one school for that that is actually like the Academy of Fine Arts it's a very academic school so you have to be like perfect drawer after life models and all of that so after graduating high school I actually took two years off and I was just I was working and and in my afternoons, like pretty much seven days a week, I spent with like drawing and drawing and drawing after life models and to get in. Wow. So it it took me, it took me a little time. And then how long was school? How long did you study there? I did five years. I did a master's program. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a couple of scholarships in the meantime. So I wasn't just in Hungary. I studied for a full semester in Marseille in France, Southern France and also a little bit in Helsinki, and then I had a summer program in Austria. So yeah, I kind of jumped around. (laughs) It sounds so glamorous. Was it, do you have like good memories of it? What was the experience like? My 20s were really intense. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, it, it, it was really glamorous. I have very good memories of the school and, you know, like, the scholarships and I, I was also very methodical at the time about making money learning to speak English and traveling a lot so I was I was I was very privileged that I able to get some support of this from my parents too and I ended up traveling like quite a lot and um, and that was all really amazing <laughs> but on the other side of this the 20s was when I really started feeling all this pressure of this childhood trauma at the age 13 that I haven't dealt with at all. So basically, I was like totally bottled up and shut down. And I, I just never dealt with that in my 20s, all this anger started coming out. And I actually had three suicide attempts, I ended up being in a mental institution for a while. So it was this back and forth of like, super highs, super lows. So I mean, I do have very good memories, but I also have some not as great ones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so the trauma that you're talking about, and we're not going to go into the details of it, um, but you were raped when you were 13 years old. Right. And and so you didn't, I mean, I think it's pretty normal for, especially at that age, to not deal with it or know how to deal with it. Um, You didn't tell anyone. No, no. And it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because so this was a continuous thing. It lasted about six, seven months of my life. I was a group of men. And uh, 
because where I lived was kind of like a small townish setup, there were rumors, which, you know, which I, from like retrospective, I heard that my mom heard something too. But, you know, my family's part, they kind of like just shut it down, like, oh no, that's not happening. And then the other part, it's just became, it just became this thing where, you know, like, children of my age started to call me names and I it's kind of like it was it was it was pretty traumatic yeah yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so it was even though the people who could have possibly done something they didn't and of course you know I spent 10 years after blaming solely myself that oh I'm sure it was my fault <laughs> you know that's kind of how it goes yeah absolutely um I'm wondering what was you know, you you talk about how in the twenty in your twenties it kind of came back and you started to see it. Was there something that you remember happened that that kind of brought it to the surface? No, no. I think it really was just so bottled up, and it just started to like a pressure cooker. It just started to come out, and and again for the longest while I didn't even know that it's related to that specifically it's just i was just very angry and very intense person i kind of you know i i started i started drinking a lot i started you know smoking pot taking some drugs i was also on prescription drugs for like antidepressant and mood stability oh my god i can't even pronounce that word anyway (laughs) so all that stuff happening and um and then i just you know made a lot of really bad choices with boyfriends and partners and kind of just almost like reacting the thing and yeah, I it so it's not like one thing. It was just a pretty pretty hard time kind of trying to I don't know. I guess I guess reacting it it's kind of made it come back and kind of yeah, I started to deal with it somehow. I went into therapy and then of course I spent a year not talking about it, talking about other stuff. <laughs> and yeah, but after you went into therapy, yeah. like yeah, because it's hard to to face it all yeah mm-hmm. yeah and and honestly like for the longest time I was sort of in a denial that this is actually bothering me I thought like yeah I'm angry at myself but that's it that's it yeah when it becomes when it's when it's your experience it's hard to know that it's not the normal mm-hmm. experience so you just sort of assume that that's the way you're supposed to be right mm-hmm. right right and especially because you know the few people who I suspect knew kind of like basically they you know implied that it was indeed my fault that was like okay then I guess that's what it is Mm -hmm. so what um what do you think was the catalyst for really being able to begin the healing process (sighs) I mean I I know you're still in the healing process of it (laughs) but you you've obviously gone from this place of um you know, of not taking care of yourself to taking care of yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, partially, I think art is a, is a huge part of it. Like after, you know, after I started playing that bass and I started like doing doing stuff again with my hand, I first was into sculpture and then I went into painting and painting just felt so good to me. So I think that started it even though again like at this point I wasn't consciously thinking about it but I was just making 
I was actually making abstract art at the time. So I was preparing to this university and the first few years there was basically life drawing, very methodical, like, you know, anatomy and all of that. But next to it, I was like painting these like huge papers with kind of like a Jackson Pollock style. I was just like slashing things over and, <laughs> and was like very expressive. And I think that's right there started to kind of move a little bit of the anger out and started to move the energy in me um and then and then honestly like the move to the united states kind of helped too so that was another thing which i can i can get into details how i got here <laughs> but well yeah it's like did you just decide oh i'm gonna get out of here and mm. move to the united States? it's a big thing <laughs> yeah because you're leaving your huge. whole family and your whole support network it's huge it was it was sort of like that but not quite like that so i always knew i'm gonna leave hungary's First of all, as an artist, I didn't see a lot of future in there, although I have a few friends who are really making it and awesome. They, they're doing a really good, nice life there, and I'm so proud of them. <laughs> but I just didn't see myself staying there. And, you know, I did all this traveling. So in 2008, my one of my brother was studying in Minneapolis um, on a research scholarship, and I visited him, and we had this awesome road trip up to Chicago and New York. and. It was really good, and um, so we. I just like kind of was like, huh? Why don't we try this green card lottery thing? So we actually both applied to the green card lottery, and I got it. He didn't, which kind of you know, not, not not great, but I got it. <laughs> He's very happy at home now with his wife and his child. <laughs> all is good. <laughs> it all worked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I got it, and so that was still 2008, and I moved in 2010. So the thing that it actually takes a while to prepare for it because it's not just that you just receive a green card and you're free to go I had to go through a number of interviews and doctor's appointment and I had to find a sponsor here which is was that was a really hard thing to do because we didn't have any family in the United States um Long story short, actually, my mom's patient came through. Was like, oh, I have, I have like an uncle. My mom's a psychiatrist, and it was an old patient of hers that they kept in touch. And just it came up, and yeah, this this uncle from New Jersey decided to gonna be my sponsor. It was very interesting, and it doesn't mean that he gave me money. It just means that he signed a paper that if I were to get into trouble, then he would, you know, he would save me. <laughs> but um, yeah, so. So then it was it was just there. It just fell into my lap. So I graduated in 2009 with my master's degree. And um, yeah, and a few months later, I was I was ready to go. So what was it like when you first moved here? Where did you go? New York City? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like, you know, coming from Eastern Europe, that's kind of like the first thing you like put your finger on. Yeah, I'm going to live in New York City. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but back to the whole thing about the healing process, too, that at the time, I was still in this up and ups and down phase. And, you know, partially, I'm surprised that my mom supported this move. But also, she was actually one of the biggest fan of it. And I think probably because of maybe, you know, maybe she's a psychiatrist, she, she saw that coming. But, you know, like, creating this distance between Hungary and the States, it's, it's, it helped tremendously. And yeah, like that, that was a big deal. Um, uh, yeah. Lizzie. Is that, yeah, did you, because the, really the abusers mm -hmm. um, were still present. Yes, yes. I mean, um, 
Yeah, they they were we weren't living at the same place at that point. We moved about three or four years after uh, this happened. But but I I mean Budapest is small. Hungary is small, so I would I would sometimes run into them. I mean at least some of them were Facebook friending me, which I of course didn't. But it's just it's just it's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, it it was. That was partially why I wanted to leave and also partially as an artist I wanted to leave and I just I kind of just always felt that Hungary is not where I'm going to be. Yeah. It's just it's interesting to me. I mean, cuz it's like it sounds as though you pretty much navigated that whole experience all on your own. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean, you went to a therapist eventually, but um you know, that's that's I don't know how anyone should be expected to do that. I know. I mean, no one really should. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you move here, are you are you making your art? Are you are you living as an artist in in the in the States? Well, I mean, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving here. So I had it's it's very funny because before I knew that I'm going to move to the United States, I heard that there's this thing called dog walking where you get (laughs) paid for walking people's dog and I would laugh at it and actually I have a little like video that I put together that from some notes that a friend of mine who was visiting in New York sent me like look this is the dog walker sent to the owner this is hilarious and I made a little like puppet video out of it and so a few years later I moved here and I became a dog walker (laughs) so that was that was the first thing. So no, I kind of at the time I was kind of thinking that I want to find jobs that are not related to my creative creativity to kind of save that energy for my art. Eventually, I figured out that that wasn't working after after a while. But yeah, I for a while I worked as a dog walker and then I like went deeper into that and became a dog trainer, which was also pretty awesome. But it just didn't felt authentic for me for a, for after a while. So. Then there was yoga, which was a big part of my life. Actually, I started started yoga around 19, and and you know it's also sounds very glamorous being an artist and a yoga instructor. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. <laughs> so yeah, like I did yoga teachers training in California, where I lived at the time, and I was teaching there for for a number of years, and I really enjoyed it, and I still love it. But um, after California, we, when we got pregnant, we moved back to New York to be closer to, you know, my husband's family in New York and also my family in Hungary. Um, and after my son was born, well, first of all, I was really, really, uh, you know, privileged and happy and grateful that I had a good amount of time with him. Like we were able to, I was able to stay at home for, for at least he was like 18 months. I was just doing little odd jobs. I was teaching for Teresa yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and other stuff. But, um, but you know, there came the time when it wasn't financially feasible anymore. And, and I was like, okay, of course, like, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, of course, I'm happy to work and contribute again. Um, but I really wanted to find something that is meaningful to to true core of mine. And and I was looking into teaching art or art therapy, and I was reading books, and yeah, and I was struggling quite a lot, like what I want to do. And then and then it's just again, kind of almost like the green card. It's kind of fallen in my lap in a way. So now I work as an art therapist, which 
which is hard, but I really, really enjoy it. Well, and I want to pause because I obviously have the benefit of knowing some of the personal <laughs> story here. But I, there was a very clear time because you had been talking to me, you know, maybe I should add another class. And you were teaching, you know, the mom and baby yoga and things that worked with your schedule and what you were doing. But at some point you were just like, I don't think I can do yoga anymore. Like I need art is my life and I need to be committed to it. And I think like that's, I just wanted to point that out because I think that when people struggle with figuring out where they want to be or how, how they are going to get to where they want to be, it's like they have to figure out where they want to be first. And you made that very clear like decision. And I wonder if it was the way you just described it was sort of, you know, it didn't come across it was as though it was a very clear thing but was it a very conscious no, it, yeah it was it was it was sorry i didn't no it right, right. <laughs> <laughs> no it definitely was and i think i think it was partially partially because of of my son because being a mother i just felt like i you know, because of him, I really want to show my true authentic self. And I want to show him that that is okay to be like, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to be exactly who you want to be. So, so it was a clear choice. I didn't know what direction to go with it versus like teaching art or art therapy per se. But, but yeah, no, it was definitely like, I want to do art from here. I really want to like put more energy into also my art art, like paint more and, and advertise it more and be more you know more active on social media about it exhibit more so i really like this kind of kind of happened last fall this shift when it's just really hit me that, that i need to put more into this i need to nurture my artists more right and did you you found this job and applied for it right yeah so it's when you i just not not to you're you're my friend so i'm gonna I'm going to be this way with you, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's not like these things just fell in your lap. Like yeah. you got clear. Yeah. You started looking for work in that area. Right. And it worked. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that sounds so much better. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, and it's inspiring to me, you know, so that's why I just want to make that clear to like everyone that, you know, it is when you kind of commit to something, you yeah. know, it, it, that's the only way that it's, you know, um, that you're going to give it the best chance of success. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, you can just commit to a dream and then it's going to happen. Of course you need to work towards it, but, but it is interesting. It, it does start with committing to it. It's, it's even back, you know, to the healing journey too. Like large part of it there was also to start realizing in my early 30s so at this point we're like almost 20 years later I start realizing that I indeed need to spend time with this I have to commit to this I have to start you know sharing my story and just yeah yeah well and we talked a little bit I don't know if you if you made the direct correlation but when you were trying to get pregnant mm -hmm. it didn't happen easily for no. you no it's definitely was definitely was a part of it so basically Moved to the U.S. Things got a little bit better. Um, I find found a loving man. <laughs> very wonderful a man. Very wonderful man. And and you know I was also finally in a headspace where I was able to choose him because it's not like you know like 
I could have made better choices before too, and and I wasn't. I would turn down a person like Christopher, you know, five years before we met. But you know, I was finally in that space. Like, okay, I really, you know, I deserve this. <laughs> I need the love. Yeah. So, so that was very healing, and and our relationship had a lot of struggles because opening up to a man was really hard for me. So the first few years were actually quite a struggle. Like we often say that the first year after our marriage was one of the hardest time we had together, which is kind of, you know, it's counterintuitive, but but it's also kind of beautiful because we worked through so much stuff together that it's it's really make us stronger. And partially what we worked through, it is a lot of fertility struggles. So so I start to heal. I'm in this good relationship. Everything is growing and great. And we're like, okay, like let's have a baby. And month and month and month pass, and there's no baby. And and that was really rough. And that was, oh my god, so painful. And also a big wake up call for me that there there is there are things I have to deal with. And and I kind of you know like we went to all the physical checkups you can have, and we're both healthy. And there's like literally no reason for us not to make a baby quickly <laughs> but so I so I just started to you know dive deeper in me and and he he did his own healing journey and we both were you know in it together but also working individually and on what what we have in our past and and that was that was actually I think the most important part of my healing journey that just started to really sit down with it, started really thinking about it, and then started sharing it. So I, I've been, at that point, I've been sharing it with, you know, like with relationships, close friends, or, you know, like partner, and then my parents knew. I, sh- I told my parents in my early 20s. But other than that, like, like I was just keep looking for these events to like help me get out of it so like you know first event like oh if I tell my parents it's gonna disappear or like if I get into this university it's gonna disappear like oh once I like move away from Hungary it's gonna disappear and each of these are are helpful so it's not like they not you know not like that nothing happened but but it's not that it disappeared there was no event and then you know fertility wasn't a big one like I was looking forward to it like oh once I'm pregnant I'm so gonna forget this <laughs> and you know and and that's that's where actually what it hit me because of course the first thing that popped in my mind when I couldn't get pregnant is like oh it's my fault it's my body it's probably a punishment because it's all my fault and mm. you know it's it's yeah so that's when you know I really had to sit down and be like okay I, I need to deal with this like there's no no running away from it anymore what was the process like for you to really sit with it and try to heal it? Well, so there's this story that I, I told you recently that um, where, it's, where it really came out was actually, I, I didn't know that it's even going to happen, but I was, uh, I was teaching in a yoga retreat. We were in Thailand and um, I was co-leading the retreat and every each day we had like a team and there was this day when our team was fear like what are, what are our fears how do we overcome it and uh so my my partner who is an amazing inspiring woman by the way <laughs> she came to me in the morning and she was like so why don't we share our 
story first like why why don't we you know instead of just asking people around like why don't we sit down and be very vulnerable and of course my heart was in my throat and I'm like oh my god okay let's do it and I had another story in my head I didn't know that I'm gonna share this but but I sit down and she started first and then you know it came to me and I I just I just started talking about being raped and how I can get pregnant and I think there's uh, there's this is there's a connection I don't know what it is but there has to be and I normally don't cry in front of people but I started crying and it's just it was really intense moment um and then later on like you know the the women of the group for sharing too and then of course a lot of other stories came out you know related to to mine because it's so common and it's it's also so common to like keep it inside and and it was it was so beautiful that after that partially what helped me so much is that i just started sharing it to people and maybe i overdid it <laughs> i i went to social media which might not be the best tool for this but but i just you know cuz first I was just really thinking like, okay, rape, infertility, what is the connection? And there's literally no research that I found out there. There's, you know, no one really looking into this. So I was just really starting like Googling about it and going on Facebook and writing about it and kind of like shouting it out to the world, like people, listen, this is a thing. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that's where I say I might have been overdid. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure you reached somebody else who needed to see that also. Well, that's that's kind of what started happening, that people just showed up, you know, like sometimes actually showed up in my life. Sometimes it's just someone in my newsfeed and, and we started talking and then, you know, like figuring out the similarities in our lives. And uh, and then, of course, there's the Me Too movement, which I didn't actually knew about it before. I'm sorry. I'm, it's embarrassing to <laughs> admit that but I was just so you know I was so ignorant to my own pain that I never looked into this but then once I was like open and be like okay I need the healing I can't do this alone anymore what's out there so then the whole me too movement and and it was it was really it was really wonderful to see other women and hear their stories and share mine and yeah so I think if I have to point at one thing that was really important in my journey, that that would probably be it. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, you know, the art show that you're doing, the Book of Persistence, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's a bit basically, you know, images and stories of these women who you've yeah. met in your life. Yeah. Um, and and I don't know if you've, you know, if they're throughout your whole life, if any of them have come up in that journey since you started talking about it but do you want to share a little bit about yeah, no, I would love to. the 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 work and the women a lot of them come up throughout this healing journey but also throughout my life I mean I, I painted my mom too so it's yeah. like it's kind of it's kind of like my entire life but large part of it is actually women who I met through going through like sexual abuse surviving stuff and also for infertility and um yeah, so basically this is a series of 15 portraits of women who I found really, really inspiring. Um, some of them I know my whole life and they're very close to me. Some of them I might have only met a few times. Um, regardless, like they, they just, the people who kind of helped me go through my own stuff, who I look up to. And, and actually I I have to admit here that this series not necessarily this series but it 
it actually started with jealousy. <laughs> so I used to struggle with jealousy a lot, especially in my 20s. And then, of course, around, you know, struggling with fertility. Huge issue. Like, I, I was awful. I still <laughs> I, I still think there are people out there who just think I'm an asshole, and I was. <laughs> Sorry but, for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was really hard hard for me to be excited when I yeah. saw a pregnancy announcement. It's, it's like, I mean, I, I I bow in front of people who can do this gracefully. I was not one of them. I would like unfriend people and, you know, and just, I just, I just couldn't handle it. It was, it was really hard. And then that was the other part that um, also after this yoga retreat, I really started to look into like, wait a minute, like, what is this jealousy coming from? And, and I kind of just turn it around, like, what if you know instead of just being angry and just be like i want what she has right yeah <laughs> instead of that like what if i you know i get inspired and and that was huge and that was you know like instead of just feeling like oh i can't have that just be but look it means that it's possible to have it it's possible to get there and yeah so that's kind of when this series started to come as an idea and now throughout this last year I've been working on this 15 portraits I think it's such a beautiful a beautiful concept and um and so they'll be up at Peace Nation we'll link to all of that in the show notes yes 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 so basically the opening reception going to be the 2nd of March mm-hmm. um it's uh their art night it's it's the art night of Kingston so the first Saturday night the uh, Peace Nation coffee will be open from 6 30 to 9 um if you want to see me I'm only going to be there after 8 because <laughs> I work on Saturday <laughs> so um yeah, but come after eight, and the show is gonna be up all the way till the end of the month. So come and visit. And then the other big thing we're doing um, next to this show is that in collaboration with the Women's History Month of Kingston, um, we're doing a women's open mic on the eighth of March, just you know, celebrating International Women's Day. So. It's going to be 7 to 9, and 7 to 8, it's going to be performers, Muslim music and poetry, and then 8 to 9, it's open mic. So this is also happening in Peace Nation right here at the corner. So you guys should come and check it out. The door is open for everyone. Uh, the mic is only for women or women identifying. I love it. Um, what were you, will you be doing with the art you know, after the show, do you have any plans for it? Yes, and it's a it's a pretty hard one. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually writing. So I imagined this from the start as a picture book, and um, I have the first draft ready. And I'm not exactly sure what this is going to go yet because of the heaviness of it. Now I'm not sharing their stories. I don't I don't want to do that. I'm basically sharing how these women inspired me and what what are those keywords that I like I got you know all the buzz and the love from and um so yeah I'm hoping I'm hoping to write a children's book I'm not sure about the age yet (laughs) but it's definitely for children I hope it's going to be inspiring and I hope it's going to be meaningful to look through um partially the reason what you know the main team here that most of these women aren't celebrities, you know, like these are everyday life and everyday heroes. And I really want to get that message through that, you know, you don't need to be someone. You just you just be you and you can still be a hero. 
Absolutely. I'm wondering if um, you've got so much going on. I mean, obviously, these things have been percolating in the back, but I feel like since the fall, like when this commitment to art and like getting the job, I feel like all of these things are just popping out of you right now. And I'm wondering you know, how you are balancing it all, you know, from the shift from being a stay at home mom taking care of the child of Joaquin to, you know, to working and doing all of this work. How are you balancing it all? I mean, it, it is hard. It's still a working process. I started this job um, early January. And so just, you know, to clarify, I work at a rehabilitation center for people with brain injury. Right. So um, do our therapy, mostly group classes, but also uh, private. And it's it's really, really interesting, but it's also very heavy. It's very emotional. A lot of, you know, a lot of these people are coming from very underserved communities and, and just, you know, the stories are really heart wrenching. So. I'm still working to figure it out, like how to not bring the emotions home. Like sometimes I go home and I cry and I can't sleep. And that's, you know, ultimately not helpful. Um, so it's still, that that part is still a transition. I try to take yoga classes when I can <laughs> 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 and go on hikes. <laughs> that's that's kind of, those are my love languages here. <laughs> and of course, also there's my son. So the, you know, I, we, we were together for like basically 20 months, inseparable. So that part is also a little bit difficult to like leave him home now, but I only work three days a week. So it's it's really doable. And to be perfectly honest, it's harder on me than on him. He's fine and he's with his dad. So it's not even, you know, he's he's not in daycare. It's 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 literally like very easy for him. Um in the first few weeks, I was the one who was like subbing in the car, <laughs> going to the bathroom and shedding tears, like, oh my god, I miss my son. But but yeah, no, it's, do it's going. Do you do you regret it? I mean, no, would you go back? Not at all, not at all. And I feel like, you know, you mentioned that at, at the fall, that's when all the changes happened. I feel like partially it was like that. I finally just like stood up for myself. I stood up for my artist, and uh, and I think getting this job, which is which is kind of like you know becoming an art therapist, is, is sort of a dream of mine, and. I think that also gave me the confidence boost to start pushing my art otherwise too. So so yeah, it's kind of like all fall into place and I'm trying to ride this wave of confidence and <laughs> yeah. It's exciting. I'm really happy for you. I'm happy to see it all Thank happening. You. And um, we look forward to watching you on um, social media feeds. And <laughs> we'll definitely you. check out the art at Peace Nation Cafe. Yes, please. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rita. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here. Thanks fun. for your time. <laughs> Hi, I'm Farrell Brenner from the Hudson Valley LGBTQ Community Center, where you can find community, family, and change. We have support and discussion groups, social events, a directory of LGBTQ affirming health providers, a weekly acupuncture clinic, youth programs, political advocacy, art exhibits, a cyber center, the largest LGBTQ library in the Hudson Valley, and the Hudson Valley Pride March and Festival every June. Stop by at 300 Wall Street, check out our website at lgbtqcenter.org, or call 845-331-5300. 
Hi, I'm Patrick Rose from the Kingston Professional Firefighters. We're shaving our heads to raise money for childhood cancer research. Sunday, March 3rd from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. You can join us or you can sponsor our team. We'll be at the Saugerties High School with other area teams and all proceeds will benefit St. Baldrick's. It's all about the kids. Childhood cancers are different than adult cancers and research into them is extremely underfunded. 300,000 children are diagnosed with cancer every year. Let's fund childhood cancer research and help kids grow up cancer-free. March 3rd at Saugerties High School. Sponsor our teams we shave our heads or join us. For more information, go to our Kingston Professional Firefighters Facebook page. Radio Kingston. Many voices. Muchas voces. Many voices. One community. Hi, I'm Malcolm Byrne. I'm a record producer here in Kingston, New York. I hear things in my own winding way, and I'd like to share that with you. The Long Way Around with me, Malcolm Byrne, Sunday nights from 8 till 10, here on Radio Kingston, 1490 WKNY. Listen anytime on our archive at radiokingston.org. You're listening to I Want What She Has. On WKNY, 1490, Kingston, New York. Hi, I'm Gretchen Reed from Mohunk Preserve. Join us at our Rock the Ridge Endurance Challenge on May 4th. You or your team will have 24 hours to walk, hike, jog, or run a 50-mile ridgeline course, all while raising funds to help more people get into nature at New York's largest nonprofit nature preserve. Early registration pricing ends March 3rd. For more information, click on the Rock the Ridge tab at mohunkpreserve.org and get ready to rock the ridge on May 4th. Hi, I'm Lauren Shealy from Legal Services of the Hudson Valley. We are now offering a free walk-in clinic at the Everett Hodge Center at 21 Franklin Street in Kingston every Thursday from 9.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. If you have a civil issue that you need help with, you can walk in, get an intake done, and if you're eligible, you'll get some legal advice on the spot. We provide legal assistance with housing, income, safety, health, and much more. If you can't make it on a Thursday or if you need more information, please visit lshv.org. Radio Kingston. Many voices. Many voices. Many voices. One community. Hi, I'm Nick Pankin. Join me Sunday nights at the crossroads of music and social justice movements. We explore music that changes our world, from songs of revolution to anti-war songs, from labor movements to civil rights movements in the U.S. and around the world. With a collage of records, interviews, and live performances, we look towards what's next in the many struggles before us. Freedom Highway, Sunday nights from 7 to 8 here on Radio Kingston, 1490 WKNY. Listen anytime on our archive at radiokingston.org. Hi. I'm Cale Capuchillan, Technical Director here at Radio Kingston. Our new podcast page is now live on RadioKingston.org. Visit the page and listen to podcasts made by your neighbors right here at Radio Kingston in our podcast studio. Or should I say, your podcast studio. Wow, it looks great. Why don't you do what you dream? If you'd like to produce a podcast here at Radio Kingston, just click on the feedback button on our website and select Submit a Podcast Idea from the drop-down menu. We'd love to help your voice be heard.
Um, great. This is the easiest this has ever been. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's usually like... Take it. it. <laughs> I know. Well, there's always <laughs> like... I don't know, for some reason, I give a little bit of extra time for this kind of stuff because there seems to be some like technical difficulties that arise, you know? Okay. So yeah, I am talking to Kristen Olson Huddle. She is a full-time mom, success coach for college students. That's awesome. She made, um, she's made clothing working for a fashion designer. She's been a theater person. She's also a writer and produced her one woman show in 2014 that went to seven festivals. And now you're getting back into work life after having twins and you and your husband are also writing and producing shows for kids with social and emotional challenges on your own record label called Open Up Records. Did I get all that right? <laughs> That's it. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> awesome. So I'm really excited to have you on I Want What She Has because you have so many things that my co-host Teresa wants. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and um, I'm sure many other women will too. I have a lot of friends that are working towards some of the goals that you've already achieved. So it's going to be great to talk to you about some of the experiences that you've had. And there's a lot. So I'm sort of going to just push us through a little bit. Great. I think a big part, I mean, when we just did our little pre-interview, you were sort of saying that your whole life has been directed from working on grieving yeah exactly so, yeah um and so i'll just read that your parents died in an unusual accident when you were young and as you grew up you hit roadblocks to your grieving process and i'm reading this from an online link that's attached to your one woman show called yes. going on yeah it's it's intentionally vague because we don't want to spoil the end of the the theater production. So, <laughs> but I, I don't mind telling you what happened um, in this format. Please do. So when I was six years old, my parents were golfing and they, um, a storm came in really fast and they were struck by lightning and died. And my brother and I were raised by my dad's brother and his family my younger sister was raised by my mom's brother and his family. And she was not even a year old yet. I was six. My brother was four. And yeah, that really kind of is the incident that impacted the rest of my life. And... You wrote this one-woman play, which we'll get to later, but it is called, quote, Going On, an Inspiring Story of Loss and Finding the Love Inside Yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> it is. Um, okay. And so you grew up in this situation, and then I guess we're going to really jump ahead but we can dip in as as you feel needed like you want to reach back into your childhood but I uh, also wrote down that in 2000 
your brother died in a car accident in India. Mm-hmm. And then that same year on April Fool's Day, you lost your job, which was also your brother's birthday. Which yeah. is just such a crazy thing to experience. And then you were breaking up with your boyfriend at that time and self-medicating through all of it. Your friends were calling you and asking you, like, are you okay? And you were like, of course I'm okay. But really, yeah, you were like day drinking and stuff. Um, can you talk a little bit about that time? Yeah. Um, so. Uh, like, where were you living? I know. That's what I was just going to explain. So there's like a little backstory with that, too, because when my parents died, um, I inherited money. Right. So here I was like in my 20s, like 27, 25. And I just bought my first house, which nobody I knew at that age owned a house. Right. It was like a very unusual thing for my peer group. And it's because of this money that I inherited. So it was like I had this weird life where it was like my job ended, but it didn't impact me financially that much. So it was like I had this cushion, but I had no um, context for like really how much money actually is or was at the time. I just remember spending a lot of time laying on the couch, looking out the window, um, my friends, I had some close people that I drank with a lot, and that was just sort of our regular thing. Right. And then, I mean, you were saying that you actually got involved with Kundalini Yoga at that time. I guess you were invited to go to a class, and you said that you took the person up on their offer, which is always sort of the gateway into like our new life, right? We take a suggestion. That's it. <laughs> That's right. And so you took a suggestion, you went to a yoga class, and then you said that it made you feel high, which I could totally relate to. And you were like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, that was right. That It was sort of like it had to go that way for me to say yes to it. Totally. And it was sort of, I was sort of drawn to it anyway, because it had that like, kind of component of India and in which my brother had been traveling through India for 11 months before the car accident. And so there was something kind of compelling about it for that reason. Yeah. I felt a little connection to him that way. Yeah. I don't want to spend too much time on your like early recovery because we have mm. so much to cover, but do you remember anything that like spoke to you when you first got in there, like, was it, do you feel like, I mean, to me, it sounds like you, you were probably really lonely. Yeah, that was a big part of it. And when I would hear other people share, I, you know, I can't remember anything specific about what they would say right now, but like, I just remember thinking over and over, I just remember thinking me too, me too. And they were just talking about things like how they interacted with their family members or an experience they had at work or any, you know, like not necessarily having to do with using, but kind of how they dealt with life 
And I just related so much. So I have written down, how did your life change after you got sober? And we were sort of like thinking, you know, that you did meet your husband and you worked at the Dougie Center, volunteering with other children that were, you know, needed grief. Um, I don't know if it's counseling, because I don't know if you counseled, but I know that you worked with children at the Dougie Center for grieving. Right. That's a good distinction. Yeah, it was definitely not counseling, but that we all, all the kids had that in common is that they were there because somebody in their family died. And that's why I was there too. I was just an adult and a volunteer, but that's why I was there. Yeah. So yeah, talk about how your life changed after you had some sobriety under your belt. Well, you know, you talked about that loneliness piece and that was very clear to me, like almost everyone I knew and hung out with stopped hanging out with me. It became a problem that I wasn't drinking. It became a problem for people that I knew. And we just stopped having things in common. And, you know, even something as simple as like a potluck was like, a very difficult thing. Right. And so I just, I dove into the yoga world, maybe five classes a week, and then going to a 12-step meeting every day. Yeah, that's how I, f- I fill my life with people and connection. That's the biggest change, is that I learned how to take care of my own feelings. I know how to take responsibility for my actions and my thoughts. Yeah, that's so perfectly put. Yeah, so, I mean, I I think I was already 35 by the time I met my husband, or close to that. Um, and I I knew all my life I always wanted kids. I knew that. I think I knew that from the time I lost my mom, is that I... I wanted to recreate that like parent-child bond. And um, this is a, a funny little tidbit that I'll share with you. But um, I said that once in a therapy session and my therapist was like, that's a terrible reason to have children. <laughs> she said, um, you, you, that's a lot of pressure for a kid and you don't want to put your kid through that. You better heal this wound before you have kids. And first of all, I would argue now that I wouldn't say that there's ever going to be a point in my life where I'd be like, well, check that off. I'm healed now. I can do whatever I want, <laughs> you know, like, and, and then the thing that really gets me is I went and saw an author speak. I can't remember her name, but she wrote a book called Motherless Daughters. And then she wrote a second book called Motherless Mothers. And it's for women who had their mom die when they were young. And her first book was, you know, about growing up without a mom. And then her second book was being a mom without a mom. And, and she said in that, in that lecture, she said that why do women who have lost their mom have kids it's because they want to heal that parent-child bond that they lost when they were young and not only is it very common for the women who have lost their moms to want that 
but they find that after they have kids, it worked. It worked. They feel they have created that parent-child bond that they lost. And so just, I like to say ha to that therapist who told me it was a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, when, when my husband and I got married, he um, was changing careers and he wanted to work with kids. And it was a major like salary shift for him. And so he was not like really gung ho on, on having kids right away. He, he wanted to be a dad, but he was like, I feel nervous about bringing a kid into our family right now because of money. Right. He was taking a big risk and he didn't want to go back to his like old job. So he was quitting being a mechanical engineer and he was going into being a children's entertainer. And so we waited. And for me, especially looking back, I mean, there was definitely a, a time in our struggle where I wanted to use that decision against him. I wanted to say, like, this is your fault for not realizing how old I was when, when you made me wait, quote. But ultimately... Who knows? Who really knows? If we would have started a year earlier or not, what would have been different? And so um, we tried just on our own. And I was pretty confident that I was going to get pregnant naturally without any medication or anything. And um, it wasn't working. It wasn't working. And just... I would connect with my doctor or something. They'd be like, come in and come meet with our fertility specialist. And I was like, are you kidding me? No way. Or they would be like, why don't you start taking Clomid? You know, it's cheap. And I was like, that's terrible. Like, I don't eat cheap food. Why, you know, like, why are you trying to sell me? Like, know your audience. I don't want to do it because it's cheap. That's like, uh, I was just so turned off by any thing they had to offer me and they were like oh you could do this and we can tell you when you're ovulating I was like I know when I'm ovulating like you guys boy this is terrible like I just thought that they were full of it and I I was in denial I was in denial I thought just for sure just based on like the fact that we're good with kids. We love kids. I'm a healthy person. I don't drink. At the time, I didn't even drink coffee. I was like eating kale every day. I thought this was enough. I thought this was like how I was going to get pregnant. And I was wrong. I was wrong. There are just some facts about life that it doesn't really matter how much kale you eat. <laughs> like um, my eggs were already old. We went and we did I decided to do um, an IUI, which is where you just basically go into the doctor's office and it's sort of like, you know, the turkey baster method, essentially, except they take the sperm and they like, they spin it or something and they get the best and the brightest. And then, you know, they get you right when you're ovulating. It's supposed to like no barriers. They put it up past the cervix. And anyway, we tried that four different times and did not get pregnant. 
I was get, I was seeing an acupuncturist along with the Western medicine. So I saw probably like five different acupuncturists over these years. And my acupuncturist is the one who was like, if you want to do this, you should try in vitro fertilization. And again, it wasn't something I wanted to do. The thought of like life beginning in a Petri dish was not appealing to me. I mean, didn't everybody know that I ate kale? Like I just, it just didn't line up with like my natural point of view. You know, I just couldn't get into it. But we, you know, we wanted kids. We really wanted kids. And so I decided to do it and it's a huge cost and it's a lot of crazy medication, a lot of shots, like daily shots. The goal is to get as many eggs to produce at one time as possible. And so I didn't even know this, but like normally on a normal cycle, your, your body selects one egg. It'll have like maybe 12 ready, or if you're really young, it might have like 30 eggs ready. And then your body selects one and all the rest kind of die off that month. And then the next month you'll have another batch and then your body selects one and all the rest die off. So these hormones that I took stopped that selection process. So all the eggs could develop in that one cycle. And so it was just these little shots in the belly and it was pretty, they didn't go very deep. It's, it's doable, but it's not fun. It's intense and crazy. And then there's a surgery. So when your eggs are ready, then there's a surgery and they get as many eggs as they can out of your ovaries. And in my case, they got nine. No, they got 12. They got 12. Um, and then the next day we got a call and they said, okay, nine are ready to be inseminated. And so they had, you know, my husband's sperm and then five took the insemination. And then it was like another, then we had to wait four days to see if those five would grow. And only one grew to the right size. And so we had out of 12, we had one actual embryo. And so at that point, we were of the age that they recommend a, a test, a genetic test. And so they did the genetic test and they found out that this embryo did not have enough chromosomes to make a human. So instead of 44, there were only 43. And so nothing happened. So we didn't we didn't plan it in the uterus because I would have had a miscarriage. Although I did bargain with the doctor. I was like, couldn't we just try? Let's just try it. And he's like, no, it, it, it doesn't make a baby. You would have a miscarriage. So we were, you know, devastated. And at that point I was like, again, so sure that that was going to work. I was so confident that this, crazy thing we were going to do. And we kind of put all our chips in, in terms of like finances and everything was going to work. And I just couldn't believe that it didn't work. Right. And so the doctor at the time talked to us about options, but 
I wasn't, I wasn't really listening. I was just thinking like, how could we have had 12 and now we have nothing. Right. So we did nothing really. We didn't do anything. We're just sort of shocked and, and disappointed and uh, I guess grieving in a way. It was about six months later and we went and saw this movie about adoption. It was a, it was called twins actually. And these two women were identical twins and, they had never met each other because they had both been adopted into different families. They were from Korea and one grew up in LA and one grew up in Paris. And then through the magic of the internet, they met and it was just a beautiful story. Anyway, we left that movie thinking about international adoption and thinking about twins and just thinking like, you know, why don't we just think outside the box? And we actually got online that night and started Googling international adoption. So we, we actually bought tickets to Thailand because this, if you're going to do IVF, get some credit cards with miles <laughs> because you're going to rack up a lot of miles paying for your IVF process. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to go to Thailand based on the, those miles. And so we're like, we have plans to go to Thailand. Like, let's think about adopting a child from Thailand. Who knows? So we started looking at international adoption and we're, there's like um, a page for every country and it says what their kind of guidelines are for parents. Oh, I don't know. We're healthy. We're married. We're heterosexual. I mean, it's a very... It got weirder and weirder as we kept reading, you know, mm -hmm. we kind of fit the financial bracket and then it said must be under 40. I was like, okay, we didn't meet the age requirement. So we looked at another country and over and over again, and it's kind of stated in different ways, we don't meet the age requirement. Like one, it's like, well, the combined age has to be under 90 or the woman has to be under 35, but the man can be as old as he possibly could be. Hmm. <laughs> it's like all these different rules. And so, I mean, we checked like the world we, <laughs> and as fast as, you know, as much as we could in one night, just like all these different countries. And um, we didn't make the age requirement. And then, but as you're Googling, you know how this works is like on the sidebar that comes up like, Hey, have you thought about this? So it said, adopt an embryo. And we're like, wait, what is that? What? Let's click on it. And we knew that we were trying to make embryos when we were doing IVF. And we know that a lot of people make a lot of embryos, like especially if you got an egg donor and she's young and she might make like 20 eggs that you can use and you might make 20 embryos. And let's say you only want three kids or however many. So we saw on the internet, it said, embryos available in Kentucky, banks of embryos 
Ontario, Colorado, you know, and all these different states. And then we thought, well, maybe we could get one shipped to Portland and just use the same fertility clinic here. And so I called the fertility clinic that we worked with here in Portland. And they were like, well, we have our own embryo program. It's called an embryo adoption program. And they said they even mentioned it when our IVF cycle failed. But like I said, I wasn't really listening to the doctor at that point. It was so devastating. So she asked me if we wanted to get on the waiting list to adopt an embryo. And I said, yes. And she said it would probably be 10 months until we hear something. And then a week later, we got an email and it had two different profiles, a male profile and a female profile. And what had happened is there was a couple and they were having a hard time becoming pregnant as well. So they got an egg donor and they made a batch of five embryos. They had two children and they are like, we're good. We don't, we don't need those other embryos. And so we adopted, actually we adopted all three. And then I was implanted with two because your chances of having one baby go up if you try to. And so we knew they were already healthy embryos. And we tried two, and then I became pregnant with twins. And now we have Marlo and Gus. And I, uh, I gave birth at 44. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm 46. They're two years old now. And your body didn't reject them, obviously. You carried them. Right. Right. Yeah. I had a very healthy pregnancy, actually. Um, There's a lot of monitoring, one, because they're twins, and two, because of my age. But everything went really well. It really was, it really went great. And like cost-wise, is it, is it comparable to IVF? Oh, okay. So if you think about IVF, like you have the first half where you do the part that we did, where we try to make as many eggs as possible. And that's around 10,000. And then most people will make an embryo that they can use. And then they do the second half, which is also what we did. So the whole kind of, if to get a baby, (laughs) it's about 20,000. I'm totally just ballparking it here. So um, it's like we did the first half and then we did the second half. So it was like another $10,000 roughly to do the second half, but we just didn't do it all together. And it wasn't the first half that got us the second half. And how many years did you spend like trying and how did you not give up? (laughs) it was about six years of trying I think not giving up had a lot to do with the acupuncturists that we saw and just like their suggestions along the way after that one acupuncturist told me to try IVF and then that didn't work I just 
I quit seeing her. I stopped going and I didn't ever talk to her again. I was mad. <laughs> I was like, thanks for that suggestion. It didn't work. And then, you know, I had another friend who had her baby and she saw this other acupuncture. You know, everybody wants to give you advice, right? And she's like, you have to go see this other acupuncturist. And he was from China, like studied acupuncture in China. He was like the real, like kind of old school OG of acupuncture. No, I don't know. <laughs> but he was... um he was like, have hope, have hope. You can, it's not too late for you to have hope. Did you see and, uh, any sort of um, people that are like mediums and psychics? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. So I did see my friend Nita, who is psychic. And uh, she, uh, I had a session with her. And she said, well, the twins are coming. The twins are coming. It's not a matter of like how they're going to get here. She's like, it's a matter of what can you do before they get here? <laughs> like you better kind of, you know, do your show or go to Thailand or whatever you want to do because the twins are coming. How long after that reading did you have the twins? Oh, it was still a long time. It was still, I can't remember, maybe like another two years. And I was like, Nita, you, you know, like, how dare she say that? It kept not working. It kept not working. <laughs> but she was right. Um, so let's talk about this one woman show. Not to skip because there's so much, but we're already like almost at the end of this interview. I, I, I want to talk you. about it. That was like a long deal. I do want to just end that by saying yeah. like, now I have Marlo and Gus. Yeah. And if we would have done it any other way. Yeah. We wouldn't have Marlo and Gus. Like all the things like that, blaming my husband about waiting, you know, even like all my alcoholism and stuff that I was doing when kind of maybe I was at my peak fertility, I could blame myself for all of that. But in the end, I have Marlo and Gus. Like I, I really wouldn't do it any other way because now I have these amazing kids. I want to just touch on like you... You did write a one-woman show, which I think is also really important because you are also, you and Rick are working on your show together, your theatrical show that you're doing for children with, um, I just want to find uh, social and emotional challenges. So let's just talk a little bit about like you and Rick worked at camp yakety yak before you even had kids right that's right yeah and then you i guess are now working on open up records which is your own record label and you're doing this video series for kids with social and emotional challenges it just sounds like you guys are really like inspired by children and you know the importance of raising children with healthy emotional skills so that when they grow up, hopefully they will be an essential part of healing this world and being a part of the change that we all want to see. And so through the work that you guys are doing now, and of course, like the, I feel like because you did your own one woman show and you've been in theater, I mean, you must have a lot to bring to this project with Rick. You want to talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we love working with Camp Yakety Yak, but now that we have kids and, you know, we have other basically conflicts in our life, we can't really be there all summer. And so we thought that this would be a great way to contribute to the camp curriculum and also go beyond camp by creating these videos. So the topics range from everything from something as simple as interrupting to something as complex as bullying. And they're just these short videos. And Rick and I actually play kids in the videos. And we're, we're in a band together. And the other band members are puppets. And one is a microphone. And one is a drum set. And it's kind of like the drum... The drums and the microphone are sort of the the voice of wisdom in our scenarios. And Rick and I are the ones like learning the lessons. We collaborated, Rick and I collaborated on writing these. And we have filmed three of them already. And now Rick is working on a grant to uh, make some more and get some more funding and hopefully a better, um, more professional production. Yeah, hopefully we can get them out. As part of the grant, we would also do kind of a bigger showing with people who are experts in the field of social emotional learning and, you know, maybe even do a showing at a couple of local colleges and have a panel, do a discussion panel and that sort of thing. So, I mean, because we didn't really get to talk about you writing your one-woman show so much in this interview, we can always come back to it. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, like, what has been the most helpful for you in processing what happened to you as a kid, losing your family at such a young age, and then, I don't know, just all the all the behind-the-scenes work that you've, like, done on yourself all these years. I mean, it sounds like you've definitely worked a lot of angles, but I'm wondering like, what, what do you feel like are some of the things that have helped you the most? So in a way, the most important thing was actually that my brother died because I had not at all connected to the pain that I had when I was a kid. I had totally like really even thought that I had moved on. And so when my brother died, it, it brought it all back, like the feeling of loss and grieving. It was suddenly all there for me to deal with. And so first of all, sobriety. My aunt said something to me once, and it didn't make sense to me at the time, but she said, you know, I don't want you to drink or use drugs in order to deal with your grieving process because if you don't face your feelings, your feelings will come back and they will come back sideways. And I, at the time I was like, that is some real wisdom. And I get that and I honor that. But I also didn't recognize that I was drinking or using drugs outside the norm. I thought my behavior was totally normal. And then when I actually stopped drinking and using drugs, I realized, okay, wow, I have not really felt a real feeling in a long time. <laughs> and so um, doing the 12 steps and just the 
the layers, right? It's just the layers that it's like the first time I didn't even put on there that I, I had resentments about my parents dying. It didn't even exist for me. I couldn't even access that pain. And, you know, over time, it became a big part of what I talked about. Doing the show itself and putting it on stage, it gave me a different perspective on it. It was like, instead of me being the victim, it's sort of like I created the character that was me. And I got to direct and I got to write and I got to kind of create the reality on stage. And so there was like that separation of the experience, but I could create it. And so that also was huge. And then it's like I could have this life outside of it. I, I didn't have to identify as that person who lost, whose parents died. That would be like the first thing you learned about me at one point in my life. And it's like, that doesn't have to be like who I am anymore. And I think that writing that show helped me get to that point. I would say, of course, meeting my husband, being in a relationship, having that like mirror of who you are and who you, how you show up every day. There's huge healing that happens there. And then also staying friends with, you know, each other through that whole process of trying to conceive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because that can tear a lot of couples apart. Yeah. And it yeah. seems like it really like brought you two closer together. And now you're doing this creative project together, which sounds incredibly like special. Yeah. Yeah. Well, more to be revealed, Kristen Olson Huddle. <laughs> 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 Thank you for doing this interview with me on Christmas Eve. How are you feeling about it? Is there anything that you want to add? That's a good question. I think we still have some time. I mean, I'm going to edit down what we have and great. Um, but I can add some more things in if there's anything you want to add. Yeah, no, I can't really think of anything else. I think I did a good job of like fitting <laughs> a lot. <laughs> there's a way. There's a way, 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 there's a way. Self-care, self-care.
feel like we talked about it in our opening section. Really? Well, we were talking about don't make assumptions. I mean, everything is self-care. Yeah, my whole life is self-care. of life is self-care. That's right. But you had something specific that you wanted to share. Well, I'm... Yeah. I haven't quite figured out how to articulate it yet. But I just started feeling the other day... um, overwhelmed you know and a little like panicked you know about like how am I going to get everything done that I need to get done and yesterday was the full moon so I usually I, I pull a tarot card on the full moon and the new moon and yesterday I pulled the hermit card which I've pulled once before in my life last November and I um, I just kind of really felt like it gave me permission in November to like to commit to just the things in my life like and not worry about saying yes to anything else like feeling like I can say no to things and it was at the time that I was writing the novel and you know launching the clothing business which I have done nothing for either of them since, understandably, because of what I've been through. But um, I I felt permission. Like, it was almost like this sign, like, yes, you're just supposed to stay in and write and work on your stuff, and you don't have to worry about doing anything else. And I, when it was done, I mean, I remember thinking this is great you know and when it was done I felt like it was such an amazing month you know and then I was pregnant and then you know that whole story of miscarriage and whatnot and it kind of just threw me off and I went into a super duper work phase like afterwards I once I started feeling healthy again and feeling good in my body I just became hyper productive and I was like doing 8,000 workshops in February at the studio and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and all this stuff. And, you know, we've been working really a lot on the podcast. And, um, and when I pulled the hermit card, I was like, oh yeah, this is what I need to do again. I need to go retreat a little bit. So I was just thinking about what that means for me and how I would execute upon it. You know, obviously I can't just unplug from the whole world. That's not what I did then either. But it's really being mindful of how I'm spending my time. Um, And I think in years past, like I would have spent, you know, months, if not years in that state of like, oh my gosh, I've got so much to do and I just have to keep pushing through. And so I think it's a good sign that it's basically been like two weeks and I noticed it and I was able to be, you know, become aware and, and, you know, have a plan for moving forward. I can totally relate to all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I love winters in New York because of the fact that we can pull the hermit card and like, 
everyone understands like if you want to just stay indoors and and if you have projects that you want to work on or whatever like it's the perfect time to do it it's amazing yeah it's absolutely amazing and it's funny because i had this idea that i was gonna be um you know like this winter i was gonna be basically you know doing this stuff and then my plans for the winter kind of just went out the window when i you know with the whole pregnancy thing and so i um i was like Oh my gosh, it's almost March. The winter's almost over and I have done nothing. I've done none of my hermiting. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I kind of, I think that too added a little bit of pressure, but. Yeah, that anxiety that you were talking about experiencing too, I feel like I've really been experiencing a lot of anxiety lately and, um, you know, just like taking a sort of picture you know like a screenshot like what is it that's making me anxious right at this very moment you know and I think a lot of people can relate to you wanting to unplug and um, I know for myself like I did the hermit thing and I was in full hermit mode and then all of a sudden people started writing in and like needing me to paint for them or whatever and I was like saying yes because these are my friends and then immediately had this rush of anxiety as I looked at my schedule and I was just like, Oh my God, you know? And it, it just, it's like intense. That's when I came to you and I was like, I think I need a yoga practice or a meditation practice or something. Cause I can't keep drinking Dana's Tulsi tinctures all day long. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, hermit, 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 hermit. I wrote my record when I hermited. I like, we worked on this show together last year and then figuring it out like faster, you know, like only two weeks in, like that's Mm -hmm. awesome. Baller. Yeah. I was trying to think of a B word that was radio. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah, so if you don't see me or hear from me, I'm alive. I'm just hermiting. She's hermiting. You can put a little uh, picture up on your social medias. Um, I want to say thank you to Manuel Blast who engineered our show. And I also want to say that we are live as a podcast and you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, soon Google Play. I want what she has dot org. If you missed any of that. Yes, come check out our beautiful website. Yeah, you by can. Webmaster <laughs> Teresa. You did a great job. Just know that it's me. It's not a professional. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, next week, we have Helping Women Attain Their Goals as a title for a show uh, with L- Lori Ostrovsky, Blair Glazer, and Rebecca Wong. These three ladies live here in the Hudson Valley and they all help other women attain their goals. So we're going to have a buzz session with them next week. Yeah, Lori was our guest in the past, so it's nice that she's coming back again. She's pretty amazing. I went to the Hudson Valley Women in Business event last week, maybe. And um, she does amazing work. She really does a lot of work for women in business. You heard music from Shauna Falana and a clip from Kristen Gillibrand, Kristen Gillibrand. Right. Which podcast was that? 
at love it or leave it okay. link to it in the show notes and that's it that's all we gotta say yeah except for until next, next week, week love yourself and uplift one, one another, another. we